with that, I'm going to get us into God's Word. If you have a Bible on your lap, uh, you can open it to Luke chapter 20, uh, verses 9 through 18 is what we're going to be looking at. Um, if you, you know, have your phone, whatever, pull that out and, uh, and scroll to these verses. Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 18. We're going to continue in our series uh, through this gospel this morning. Let me read the text, pray, and then we'll dive in. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Let's pray. God, these are at one and the same time uh, very severe and hard words, and yet they are also full of grace, full of tenderness, uh, full of invitation and welcome. God, I pray um, that as we uh, gather again around your word this morning, that you would settle in our hearts uh, where uh, we land on the issue of, of Jesus. <laughs> I pray, God, that we would uh, say with Peter, listen, you have the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? I pray that by the time we're done, we'd say with the apostles, listen, there is no one under heaven, no name under heaven by which men can be saved. I pray that we would say with Thomas, my Lord and my God, my Savior and my God. Uh, Jesus, that is who you are. But if we're honest, sometimes we struggle. Sometimes we push back and we fight and we resist. This morning, we want you to have our whole heart. So we open our hearts to you. We open your scriptures. We beg you, God, come and speak. Come and minister. Come and occupy the center of our lives, the foundation of our lives. Be that cornerstone that you truly are. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so in our text for this morning, we are given, if you noticed, both a parable and an image. Um, we have this parable about a vineyard and these vine-keeping tenants 
Uh, and then we have this image later uh, about this uh, concerning this stone, this cornerstone that people are stumbling over and things. But even though we have these these two different uh, uh, pieces here, this parable and this image, this vineyard and this stone, it seems to me really Jesus is using them both to kind of leverage and, and get at the same uh, basic reality. Uh, and that reality is essentially this. We must all decide what we are to make of Jesus. Every person for himself needs to decide what he or she is going to make of Jesus. Uh, what are we going to make of his claim on our lives? How are we going to respond to his offer of amnesty in the face of our uh, sin? What are we going to make of this man from Nazareth? Jesus the Christ. In our text, the um, matter of this decision uh, is really being escalated, we see, to this sort of crisis point. Remember, this is uh, that last week of Jesus' life and things are heating up. Conflict is heating up between him and especially the religious leaders there. And, and so Jesus really is is pushing this decision stuff. Who, what are you going to make of me? Who do you say that I am? He's pushing that to this, uh, this really crisis point. He sees himself, it, it seems to me, uh, as God's last appeal to a people who have resisted and resisted him for so long. As one commentator puts it, these people in our text here uh, face the most critical decision of their lives. And I'm inclined to agree with that estimation. This is the most critical decision of their lives. And if you've seen what the title of this sermon is, you know that I'm inclined to think uh, it's the same really for us as well. That Luke, as he's recording these stories and things, doesn't mean for us to simply read and, and consider the Jews and what they would make of Jesus. He means for us to be confronted with the very same questions. What are we going to make of Jesus? And therein lies the, the most critical decision uh, of our lives. We too face that crisis point. What will we make of Jesus? Will we receive him? serve him, build our lives upon and around him? Or will we reject him and ultimately be undone by him? So this is the fork in the road. Uh, this is the matter that's laid out before us this morning. And, and clearly it's a matter of magnificent import. Uh, simply put, really here lay the difference between eternal life and eternal death. That's why the commentator could be so bold as to say this, brothers and sisters, is the most important decision you'll ever make. What you're going to do with Jesus. So um, I'm going to organize this sermon. Uh, really, I'm, I'm just going to kind of divide up the sermon the same way that it seems Luke kind of divides it on the same broad line uh, that, that Luke kind of divides the text uh, in front of us, where we just see, really, he, he deals first with this idea of the vineyard, and then secondly, uh, with this image of the stone. So the vineyard, uh, point number one, verses 9 through 16, and then the stone, uh, point number two, verses 17 to 18. 
great majority of our time is going to be on the first, and we'll just kind of wrap things up uh, with that second one. So the vineyard, verses 9 through 16. Let me make a few opening remarks, uh, just a couple quick notes uh, to help us kind of set us up for uh, properly understanding this parable, even before we kind of dive into some of the details. A few things I think we need to know. Uh, first, uh, we need to understand something about the audience. As Jesus is telling this parable, we need to know who's there and, and, and who's really, who he's really kind of aiming at in this, because uh, often the clues for interpretation lie uh, within actually kind of who's hearing and listening and what's been happening um, in the context. So we're told there in verse 9 that Jesus is telling this parable to the people. In general, so the people there in Jerusalem, people there in the temple, it would seem following off of verses one through eight. Uh, he's telling this uh, parable to the people in general. But uh, I think it's not a stretch uh, uh, by any means to see that he is actually aiming in particular at that group that uh, came really to the forefront last week in verses 1 through 8, namely those religious leaders, those dudes that were coming in from the Sanhedrin that had issues with what Jesus was doing in the temple. Why was he throwing over tables? They were taking issue with the sort of authority that he was claiming for himself, it would seem. So you got the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, those guys, those men of stature, it seemed to me are particularly uh, in Christ's line of sight as he is delivering this parable. These are the men who, if you recall from last week, they're not, they're not particularly interested in honestly seeking Jesus. Who he really is is not a concern to them. Uh, they're actually just trying to trip him up in his words so they can condemn and ultimately kill him. Jesus to them is a threat to their place of prominence, the, the place of prominence that they're enjoying currently, thank you very much, and they don't want him to mess it up. So you've got to mark that. Jesus to them is not Savior, not Messiah, not Lord. He's threat. He's threat, and he may be that even for some of you, if we're honest. Now, this, of course, accounts, I think, for why Jesus goes on to tell the parable that he does about a man who owns a vineyard and he leases that vineyard out to these tenants who care for the, the, the vines and things. And, 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 and then uh, it talks even within the parable how these guys are, are not properly stewarding what's been entrusted to them, but instead they're attempting to usurp what he's given them, usurp his authority, and they're trying to lay claim on his property and profits and things. And I think this is exactly what these religious leaders are, in fact, doing and Jesus tells the parable to just kind of go right at them with this. And so while last time we saw that Jesus was not willing to engage the discussion on their terms, you remember, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I'm not going to not going to answer your questions. So even though last week we saw men, it seemed like he's done talking to them. We realize here he still has a few choice words to share, but now on his own terms. And in his own way. So that's first opening remark. The audience, I think in particular, we're looking at these religious leaders here. But then um, the second thing that I'd want to say just concerns this, this um, rich biblical symbolism involved in the idea of, of a vineyard. So um, 
What you may or may not know is that uh, biblical scholars understand that since the time, really, of the prophet Isaiah, uh, the vineyard was recognized as a symbol of Israel. There's just a a rich tradition, biblically, uh, largely uh, stemming back from Isaiah and things, that um, kind of pictures Israel as God's vineyard. Um, In fact, this parable Jesus tells here has these striking parallels with some of the things that Isaiah says, actually, in in Isaiah 5, 1 through 7 in particular. We don't have time to go there, um, but you may want to check that out. Verse 7 of Isaiah 5 is the most explicit, and so I'd at least read you this. Um, This is the prophet Isaiah here. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Just says it. (laughs) Israel is my Yahweh's vineyard. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he, Yahweh, looked for justice there, looked for good fruit, but behold, bloodshed, wild grapes, (laughs) for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Psalm 80, verses 8 through 13, uh, draws on this same uh, tradition, really, and talks about how Um, God, when he took Israel out of Egypt, it was as if he was really uh, bringing a vine out of Egypt, it says in verse 8. And then uh, the the imagery is then he took them to Canaan and there he planted his vineyard. So Israel, his people, are also his vineyard. Um, Israel is to be God's vineyard from which sweet wine should flow forth for his glory to the nations. But there's no fruit, there's no wine, so what happens now? And that really is where we kind of start to get into this parable and some of the details. But um, those were a few just opening notes. Hopefully it helps you. Let's start to uh, dive in um, to these verses. Now, um, w- one of the things I should say just to kind of orient us as we, as we get f- moving forward Um, it seems to me that the words of Jesus here are are really taking us on a journey of sorts. Uh, I'm seeing he's kind of leading us with each subsequent line in this parable on this journey. But the strange thing is, is that we're, we're going both downward and upward. We're going both into the darkness and into the light at one and the same time. Um, it's as if we're being uh, taken both deeper down into the, the dark heart uh, of, of man and uh, also at the same time taken up uh, into the radiant heart of God with his kindness and his love and his mercy. Both are coming into view uh, as we step along here uh, more and more clearly um, it's actually quite profound. If I could give you an image, I guess it's, it seems to me it's almost as if we're traveling two staircases at once. Uh, the one is descending kind of deep into the attic of man's fallen nature and the, the, the nasty stuff down there, the rats that are scampering about, the roaches. We get, we're catching some vision of that. But then the other staircase is ascending and it's going higher and we're catching vistas of God's love and his mercy that we never even thought possible. And the crazy thing is, is that with a single step, we're moving down and up on both. 
Each step takes us both down and up, revealing something more of darkness and of light, of ugliness and of beauty, of hardness and of tenderness, of hatred and of love, of man and of God. Now, um, I suppose we could say that in this parable, really, Jesus outlines four steps along this strange dual staircase. Uh, the first three steps can really be uh, considered uh, under one heading, and then uh, the fourth really stands alone on its, on its own. Let me show you what I mean in case I've already really confused you. Uh, I think soon it will make sense. Um, what I'm identifying as steps here really corresponds with these people that the owner of the vineyard sends as his representatives to the tenants. So you notice uh, God keeps sending, or the owner of this vineyard, standing for God, uh, keeps sending these, these servants, these people who will be representing him to these tenants, and uh, he keeps sending, and he keeps sending, and we watch, and we read, and the, the, the verses keep going, and he keeps pursuing, and he keeps pursuing. But at every stretch, these guys resist, and they reject. Um, the understanding here is that this vineyard belongs to him and there is therefore rent to be paid. Uh, but one uh, commentator, C.H. Dodd, makes note of this. They pay their rent in blows. Whatever they owed him with good grape harvest and wine and profit, they instead uh, decide to give him in blows with fists closed. Um, the first three of these representatives, and why I said they could be really conceived of under one, uh, uh, one time, is they're, they're all called uh, servants, if you've noticed. They're all called the owner of the vineyard's servants. And what we notice is that with each subsequent servant, uh, the way they are treated by these tenants gets worse and worse. Again, we're going down, as it were, with each subsequent uh, person's arrival. So the first servant, we're told, is beaten and then sent away empty-handed, verse 10. The second servant is also beaten, but now we're told that he is also treated shamefully and then sent away empty-handed, verse 11. So there's just a little extra, little extra love given to the second guy. Then the third uh, comes in, and this one is wounded, and that's this uh, strong Greek word traumatizo, which I think you can imagine where we get our, our English uh, um, traumatize from. So he's wounded, he's traumatizoed, um, and then he is cast out. In the Greek, that's ekbalo, which is a much stronger word than just oh, merely sent away. He's cast out. So it's getting worse. It's getting worse with each subsequent servant. The point here, man is hardening, but God is still coming. Man is hardening, but God is still coming. Now, the servants here, what we should understand um, really represent when we, when we uh, look at uh, redemptive history and the storyline of the Bible, what we come to see is that these servants really represent the prophets of God. They're the prophets that God sent to, sent to his people time and time again to warn them, to call them back to himself, uh, 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 to, to lead them in repentance and bring them to reconciliation uh, with God. 
Uh, there are a number of places throughout the scriptures where this connection is made plain. Let me just read to you a few. First, Jeremiah 7, 21, or I'm sorry, 25 and 26. Uh, God says through the prophet Jeremiah here, from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, all my servants, the prophets to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Did you hear that? It's exactly what we're seeing in our, our parable. And I think Jesus is just recalling this history as he's telling the story. You see, uh, God lovingly, persistently sends prophets to a rebellious people, calling them back, calling them out in their sin, saying, why would you die in your sin? Come home to God. And they don't get better. They just get worse. They just get worse. The more I keep coming, the worse they get. Second Chronicles 36, 15 and 16, uh, summing up the history of Israel leading up to the exile, really, the, chronicle write, the chronicler writes this, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. He's exhausted all his options. I keep sending and sending and sending. There's no remedy. They keep resisting the prophets, though I keep coming at them in love. Nehemiah, last one here, Nehemiah 9.26, there the Levites are leading the people of Israel in confession of sin, and they're recounting God's goodness to them through the years, all the way from Abraham, through the Exodus, and, 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 and into Canaan and other things. They're recounting the goodness of God, and yet confessing how uh, their forefathers did not uh, 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 receive him, trust him, obey him. They just took it all for granted, and this is what they say, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. So note again, the heart of man and the heart of God, the darkness and the light. We are, I hope you see it, one and the same time going down those stairs, but we're also going up. We are seeing things in our fallen human nature that we really wish we could unsee. The hardness of it, the selfishness of it, the sickness of it. But we're also at the same time seeing things in God that we never dared to hope could be true. Namely, that He keep coming. He keep coming, he keep coming to a rebellious, resistant, ugly people, a, a, a fruitless vineyard. Why is he still coming? Now, 
quick point of application here, uh, really kind of drawing a lesson for us from the side of the tenants in particular, as we just learn about what can happen in the heart of man. I think one of the things that we need to stop as we've just considered those first three steps up and down this staircase, um, uh, one of the things that we uh, need to do here is actually uh, check our own hearts. We realize that in uh, our fallen nature, there is this tendency to harden up, to push back against God. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we hardening? Are we hardening? Are we resisting? Are we pushing? Is God maybe trying to do things right now in your life? You're saying, that's mine. Hands off. Like these guys maybe would have with the vineyard, right? This is mine. We're all guilty of, of what I've heard called cosmic plagiarism in one way or another, where we like to claim for ourselves that which is truly God's. And maybe some of us are doing that right now. We're not open to his plans, to his ways. We're hardened. We got our plans. We got our way. We don't want to go there. And we're kind of, what we need to realize is, man, we, 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 we see that we're prone to this. And maybe if we came in thinking, ah, that's not me, that could never be me. We spend time here, we, we start to see ourselves in these guys and we go, maybe there are things actually. The Holy Spirit, I pray, is, is illuminating our hearts and we're seeing some of that. I say, why would I hold on to this? Why, why am I acting like these guys that I can see clearly in the parable are so sick and nasty, and self-centered? Why would I not trust God who's given everything to me? And give it back to him. So the word for us really is the same thing that the author of Hebrews uh, quotes numerous times. Hebrews 3.15. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Act on it today. Let it go today. Come back to him today. Steps one through three, we looked at the servants there, but now we come to really step four, and, and we, we find here as we carry on in the parable, we're taking one more step deeper and higher. Uh, here we come to verse 13 in this idea of the beloved son. We read this, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? Now, I want to stop there for a moment. I want to stop there. I know it keeps going. The text just kind of flows almost matter-of-factly, but I want to pause on this for a moment. Then the owner of the vineyard, after all this stuff going down with the servants, uh, said, what shall I do? He pauses and deliberates amongst himself here, it would seem. What shall I do in light of this? Oh, I, 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 I've sent servant after servant after servant. And they've only hardened in their response. They are squatting on my land. They are stealing my stuff. They are beating my representatives. They are taking me for the fool. They are trampling my name in the dirt. What shall I do? And to feel the full weight of it, you've got to stop and ask even go even further with this. And ask, what would you do? What would I do? I mean, think about it. Think about your latest tip or your latest struggle. Have you ever had your name trampled in the dirt? 
Have you ever had people treat you poorly? Have you ever been talked about behind your back? Have you ever had your stuff stolen, your property damaged? Have people ever uh, made fun of you, mocked you? Have you ever been beaten or physically wounded? Have you ever been rejected, despised? Have you ever had your heart wounded or been taken advantage of? How do you respond? Well, I'll tell you. I mean, this parable would be over if, if this were me, if this were a parable about how Nick, the owner of the vineyard, responds in a situation like this. The par- it would be very boring. The parable would be over after the first line. I send the first servant. They beat him and don't do what I say. I roll up with the full weight of my wrath. You're on my land. Get off. I come in with vengeance. I come in with fury. What shall I do? I'm going to make things right. I'm going to take it into my own hands. Thank you very much. That's what I shall do. But that's not what God does. That's not what God does. Read it. Finish verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. And I want you to feel that because there was part of me, and forgive me if this seems borderline disrespectful or blasphemous, but there was part of me that read that and thought, when you really let that sink in, it seems like God is almost teetering on the brink of insanity here. it's a maniacal mercy that our Father has. That's what I want you to catch. Nobody in their right mind responds to, to, to ill treatment time and time again like this. Oh, you treated these guys that way. Let me give you the best thing I have. Nobody does that. But God does. You see, He's relentless In his hope, it would seem to me, he's relentless in his desire for reunion and reconciliation. And so if I'm catching his logic here, here's what it is. And we're supposed to just kind of enter into the story and feel this. It's almost as if he's saying, ah, I know what's been off. I've been sending them just my mere servants here. No wonder they haven't been respecting. But surely if I send my beloved son, they're going to honor him. You see, he's still hoping, it would seem almost, for these people that have clearly proven themselves to be nothing but scumbags. And he's going, no, they're good. I know them. This is my vineyard. (laughs) This is my people. They're going to bear good fruit. Send my son. They'll roll out the red carpet, right? Wrong. Remember, we're not only going up the staircase here, we're going down, way down. So we read verse 14, but when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. If God's love and mercy is insane, man's rebellion against God is even more so. 
And I want you to understand what we do by nature every day <laughs> is pick a fight, as it were, with Almighty God. It's the craziest thing you could ever think of. It's like a chihuahua trying to go up against a Rottweiler, right? Except infinitely more. It's, it's obscene. It's insane. And yet we're doing it all the time. One commentator writes this. Since the beginning of creation, humanity has sought to be like God without obeying him. To become lords of Eden rather than stewards of it. What is the sum total of human history if not the attempt to rid the universe of God so that humanity can rule supreme? The tenants of the vineyard are the ultimate expression of human rebellion. They kill the heir and seize the inheritance for themselves. They don't honor the son. They see their opportunity. Now's our chance. Ring his neck. And it's ours. Again, notice the escalation of things. We're taking a step down, even as we take a step up. The servants, remember, they just roughed up and then sent home. But the beloved son, they cast out and they kill. God's highest treasure is discarded like a piece of trash. Everything, and this is what I want you to hear, and we'll, we'll talk about this for a moment, everything that the servants experienced, the son experienced infinitely more so. I want you to think about this. We're just going to reflect, elevate the love of God for us in Jesus in these moments. Were the servants beaten? Yes, they were. How much more would Jesus be beaten Remember Luke twenty two sixty three. Now the men were holding Jesus in custody, or who were holding Jesus in custody, were mocking him as they beat him. Or John nineteen one. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Were the servants treated shamefully? Yes, they were. But how much more so, Jesus? You remember the author of Hebrews writes, Hebrews 12, 2, that Jesus endured the cross and despised or disregarded the shame of it. You see, the cross uh, was going to be one of the most shameful ways you could ever leave this world. It was not just a painful mode of execution. It was a shameful way to kill a person. It was a way of killing uh, really the, the whole uh, of a person so that you're not just dying physically. You're dying relationally, socially. Uh, there's this visibility to it as you carried your cross and everybody knew you were a convicted criminal. It was the walk of shame and they hung you up in your underwear for people to gather around and watch and laugh at you were not killed or executed with some shred of your dignity left intact behind closed doors with a a lethal injection or something whatever you may feel about that that's not my point it's just the, the the issue of crucifixion Part of the point was to put you on full display so that you not only were killed, you were shamed. You were fully and totally destroyed. And the beloved Son of God went to the cross and experienced that. Were the servants wounded? Yes, they were. But how much more so Jesus' 
Thorns were driven through his temples. Nails uh, thrust through his hands and feet. Spear into his side. Were the servants sent away empty-handed? Yes, they were. How much more so Jesus around the cross. They're gambling for his garments. He has no clothes. He has no water. Remember that I thirst. He has no dignity. He has no friends. You slaughter the the sheep, or I'm sorry, you, you get the shepherd and the sheep scatter. They're all gone. No friends. And last and worst of all, it would appear he has no father. You remember what he says there, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Scholars have pointed out it's the only place we can find on record in the Gospels where Jesus doesn't refer to God as his father, but instead calls him God. Why? Well, it's because his father is turning on him the full weight of God's wrath, a righteous, just, holy fury is being poured out upon the Son in those moments for the sake of sinners like you and I. My God, my God, where did my Father go? Right? Empty-handed. Empty-handed. Were the servants cast out? Yes, they were, but how much more so Jesus? I said that in the Greek, ekbalo is a very strong word. It's used to describe what Jesus does actually with demons. He casts them out. It's used to describe what God will do with the unfaithful on the last uh, day when we're told that he will cast them out into that place uh, of outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 8, 12. So it can suggest the idea of divine judgment and and it reminds us that when Jesus was led outside the city and killed, when they cast him out and killed him, as our text says, He was literally going through hell for us. He was experiencing the outer darkness. He was experiencing the weeping and the gnashing of teeth as he hung there on the cross. So we're taking steps down, no doubt, into the wickedness that's that's, uh, in our fallen, nasty hearts. But are we not also ascending a staircase at this very same moment, seeing something of the love of God that is absolutely unfathomable to us? It's what John says in that beloved text, John 3, 16, 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Even though we resisted and rejected at every point, God's still coming to save. The love is amazing, unfathomable. So let's bring out one more application point here before I move to to, uh, point two. application on this one, I want to take it from the side of of God as he's revealed to us in this parable and therefore we're going to consider his love and his kindness for us. 
And I know we've kind of talked a little bit about this in uh, the, you know, the last couple of weeks. We'll kind of come at it from a little bit uh, different of an angle here, I think. But I, I do suspect that regardless of whatever it is we read in parables and texts like this, uh, even though we're looking and we're going, my goodness, his mercy is relentless, it, even insane or maniacal. Man, it's crazy. We, we, we punch him and he comes back to hug us. We puncture him and, and he bleeds compassion. Uh, even though we see that clearly here, <laughs> what shall I do? I'll send my, my beloved son. Are we not prone to, if we're honest, to think that God kind of requires us to, to twist his arm a bit, to, to, to kind of, we got to really work and wrangle kindness and goodness out of him. Uh, if we're honest, don't we sometimes feel like he's a bit stingy, like he's holding back on us unless we really come in and press for blessing? Um, to, to come at this, I want you to consider your experience in prayer. And, and I think you'll agree. I want you to think about your prayer life for a moment. I imagine I'm not alone here where there are plenty of things I pray for. And I pray for diligently even. Not that many things I pray for diligently, but there are some. And I'm praying and I'm praying. And then sometimes, actually the opposite, what I'm even asking God for happens. And what, what I've realized is, is I can start to feel, maybe I wouldn't vocalize it, maybe I would. Uh, but I can start to feel like, God, like you're hard. You're tough. You're kind of mean. Like I'm crying out and you're not, you don't seem like you're answering at all, at least not in the way that I wanted. You're not responding. You're not there. What do I have to do? Do I got to fast? I didn't fast. I guess I should fast. Do I got to do a dance? Is it because I sinned yesterday? Uh, is it because I don't have a mustard seed of faith? What do I got to do to squeeze some blessing out of you? Because you're hard, you're stingy, you're holding back. I wonder if you've ever felt that way about God. Well, this text is saying, not so fast. He's actually more compassionate and ready to bless than we can even imagine. Like I said, we look at his response and we go, this is insane. If, if another, I see another person acting like this, I'm thinking they're suicidal. Why are you still hanging with those guys? Why are you still hoping for them? Pull away. Get out before it's too late. But he keeps coming and he keeps coming. His mercy and compassion are relentless. It's not as if these men deserved it or they fasted or they tried so hard and earned it. No, that's just who God is. Is it not possible, therefore, that his definition of compassion is just simply different than ours. And this is the key point here. You see, I think our definition of God being good to us and God having compassion on us means he does what we ask for, gives us all the good stuff in the here and now. Like we pray, hey, I would love a steak dinner tonight. Poof, there's the steak dinner. God, you love me. And I pray, I'd like a steak dinner. Poof. I got nothing but some like beanie weenies or some top ramen. God, you hate me, right? 
We think here and now, you give me what I want that makes me comfortable. That's compassion. That's good. Maybe God's understanding of it is a little bit more nuanced. Maybe his definition is something like this. Listen, I'll give you more of what you really need right now, namely myself. And if you trust me, if you continue to walk with me, I will give you more than you can possibly imagine in the age to come. Like you won't even be able to wrap your mind. I can't even talk to you about it because you won't be able to imagine it. Sometimes those unanswered prayers, and he's right there. And this text tells us, don't be so quick to question his heart like I so often am. I love these words from Elizabeth Elliot. Um, God will not protect you from anything that will make you more like Jesus. Did you hear that? God will not protect you from anything that will make you more like Jesus. Let those words sink in because I think they're true. I bring this up because I think a lot of times what we're praying for, if we're honest, is protection, right? Protect me from, uh, you know, bad health. Protect me from a lost job. Protect me from these unfortunate providences. I don't want pain. I don't want hurt. Protect me from all of that. But what Elizabeth Elliot is saying is, listen, God's not going to protect you from things that are going to make you more like Jesus. Why? Because he's actually more interested in protecting you from perhaps even more dangerous things. Things like sin. Things like that stuff that's in your nature that we see here. You see, perhaps God sees a little bit broader, a little bit wider, a little bit more than you and I do. Perhaps he's protecting us from something far more dangerous. Perhaps he's working towards something far more glorious than he is. If there's one thing we learn from watching God in this parable, it is this. He doesn't need to be prodded into showing compassion. That's what he delights and is spring-loaded to do. It just comes out of it. So my encouragement, trust him, even when it's hard. Now, second piece I told you we'd look at is the stone. We saw the vineyard there, now the stone. And I'll be quicker with this one, I promise. Verses 17 and 18. Um, as we transition now uh, to this image Jesus gives us about the stone, we, we actually need to read uh, the last lines of the parable concerning the vineyard because they really serve as the hinge from one to the other. If you notice, I haven't read those verses uh, yet. We haven't discussed them. I want to do that now. Um, after kind of outlining in the parable all that these tenants have done, Jesus turns to his audience and he asks, verse 15, the latter part, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? It's virtually the same question that God asked himself back up in verse 13. But now what we realize is, is he's essentially exhausted all of his options. I sent my servants. I sent my only beloved son. I opened my heart. They gave me only fists and pushback, rejection. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? What now? If God is still to be righteous, still to be just, still to be holy, he must make an end of this evil. But note, judgment is always his last resort. So verse 16, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, when they heard this, the people there said, surely not. 
I imagine especially those leaders spoke up at this point because they essentially are the tenants caring for the vineyard that is Israel, the people of Israel. These leaders were called to do that there, and they're not doing it. And Jesus is essentially saying, I'm going to come, and we're going to take that vineyard from you. And they're saying, surely not. Couldn't be. They see what all this meant for them, and they object. But Jesus then responds with this proof text, as it were, about a stone. Shifts the images here, but really is going to get at the same basic realities. Verse 17, let's look at what he says. But he looked directly at them, and he said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. In verse 17, he quotes directly from Psalm 118.22. In verse 18, he's likely alluding to Isaiah 8.14 and 15 and the visions of Daniel 2. You don't have time to go into any of that, but you can on your own if you want. I have to keep it simple here. Really, again, though the imagery shifts from, from vineyards and grapes and now to buildings and stones, the essence of the matter is still the same. Just as the vine dressers refuse to bring forth good fruit and they reject the owner's son, so the builders here refuse to follow the divine blueprint and reject the corner stone cornerstone of a building um, likely thought the word here what they're referring to is this foundation stone that stood kind of uh, at the corner between two sides of a wall uh, of two walls and so in other words if you get the cornerstone wrong the whole building is off and and Jesus is here saying God is building around me and upon me and the people, the leaders, the builders say, ah, no thank you. We'd rather build something else. So they keep stumbling over him and will eventually, in the last judgment, if they don't turn and repent, be crushed by him. Let me just end with um, some considerations for us. Um, we could put the matter, I think, most pointedly this way. Uh, what you, when it comes to what you will make of Jesus, um, you really have, at the end of the day, uh, two choices. Either you can stumble and fall over him and ultimately be crushed by him, or you can stumble and fall upon him and ultimately be built up by him and in him. Let me help you see what I mean. When we try to do life apart from Jesus, when we try to build our lives without reference to him, not upon him, at first, we may feel free. It may feel like a great idea. It feels awesome. I don't got to worry about what is sin or what isn't. I don't got to worry about church on Sunday and all of these rules and, and, and all this. I just kind of get to do what I want when I want it. I call the shots. I make the plans. I build my life by the blueprint I want to build. I don't got to worry about God 
or Jesus or the gospel or calls to repentance or all this other stuff. Now, again, on the surface, it sounds good. And maybe even some of you listening are thinking, gosh, that would be nice. But if you go off and you start to live that way, if you start to build your life in that fashion, what you find is you keep stumbling. You might not even know over what, but you keep stumbling. You keep not quite getting things in the place that you want. You keep hoping this will do it, and it doesn't. So you try that, and it doesn't either. You you still feel strangely hollow and empty, though you've had the sex, and you got the money, and you got the good car, and you're going, what am I missing? You're stumbling even as you're building. You're stumbling over Christ stumbling over and falling over Christ, refusing to build around him, but he's still there. He's still the way human beings were designed to work in relation with him. He he still holds the blueprint for what flourishing humanity should look like. You can't have fullness of life without the author of life. And yet we try to do it all the time and we stumble and we wonder why am I still shot through with worries, anxieties? Why can I not seem to get peace? Why am I not satisfied? You see, God's trying to build our lives around Him, but we're busy trying to build our lives around something else. We resist and refuse the divine architect, as it were. He wants to make a temple of us but we're content building our own little shanties. (laughs) And then we bellyache when the wind and rain bring those shanties crumbling down. What's up? Why is it not working? We're not letting him build. We're stumbling and falling over the sun, the cornerstone, and we will ultimately be crushed by him unless, unless we stumble and fall over, stumble and fall over, stumble and fall over until finally we stumble and fall upon. I think you know the difference when you're fighting and you're pushing back against Jesus and then when finally you say, I got nothing left. If you know how to build up from these ruins, build up. I got nothing Left. That's my testimony. I, mean, I came haggard and hobbling into the kingdom of heaven, chasing everything I could until finally, man, finally, I fell no longer over the sun, but man, onto him, upon him, into him. And he started to put back together all the stuff I'd broken. He starts to rebuild the things that were out of order. I imagine your testimony may be something similar, and yet still, it's worth considering. Some of us might not even be walking with Christ, and we're just kind of feeling it out, and we're wondering, why do I keep stumbling? (laughs) Why can't I find that place where I I actually feel like I've got some sense of peace or satisfaction? I'm not saying as a Christian that it just goes away. I'm just saying now, instead of uh, stumbling and falling on our face, we stumble and fall on our knees. We have relationship and we go deeper with him and there's a peace there you just don't get otherwise. And so we do well to ask, are we letting him build? Is he right now 
cornerstone for us? Or is he stumbling block and rock of offense? Because that just takes it back full circle to where we began and the most critical decision we'll ever make. Who is Jesus? What are we going to do with him? Are we going to keep stumbling over him till he crushes us in the end? Miserable now, miserable later. Are we going to call him what he truly is? Cornerstone, the son of God, our savior, our Lord. And let him start to build our lives upon him, around him, and make from us something beautiful. I pray that's the one we choose. Let's pray. Well, God, thank you for um, your word to us. Thank you that even in scripture, when you warn, it is also at the same time an invitation. Though you are threatening here judgment, you are also inviting people to come. You're saying that your arms are still open, though they are closing. And we all will face judgment day. And God, I pray for those that think, oh, it's a joke or, oh, they'll be fine. Lord, I pray that right now we would fall again upon you fresh. That we would get on our knees and talk to you. That maybe for some of us, even the first time we'd come and say, can you build something from these ruins? It's all I have to offer. All I got is my junk and my sin. You love it, Lord. I know you love that prayer. You love to see, you delight to show mercy to those that call out for it. So I pray you'd do that, Lord. I pray you'd build from us something beautiful for the glory of your name, the good of this world. In Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen.